Welcome to text-based weekly Tanya class. Before we start learning, we're going to mention that uh, there's a member of this class, a uh, regular member of the class, one of the pillars of this class, who, uh, Baruch Hashem, is on the way to a complete recovery, and we want to all have her in mind. Pesel Leia Bas Freda, right, our friend Paula. She should have a refuah shlema kreva. Okay. Also, today is the yard site of um, Alta Shula Bas Yesef Yitzchok. Um, her neshama should have an aliyah. And she should complete the shlichus that she began in her lifetime, which is only one thing, to bring Mashiach. Amen. Okay. Um, for those who are joining us for the first time, this is text-based weekly Tanya. We, it's text-based, it's every, every word, we read every word of the Holy Tanya. And uh, we started, how long ago did we start? A year and? Two years. Two years, almost two years ago? October 11th, Oh, so two years ago, over two years ago. Two years and a few days. So we started with the chapter, uh, not just chapter one, we started with um, the title page. We started with the title page. And now we're on chapter 48. Um, those who haven't been here for the first 47 chapters, <laughs> it's going to be tough to catch you up. Um, but hopefully, I, I know that you will gain. I know that you will gain because there are rich ideas in every single chapter of Tanya that you can apply. Um, and what I'll try to do is... Well, those who are regular members of the class know that my style of Tanya is very, very much about the structure of Tanya, understanding how one chapter flows into the next chapter and what's happening in each part of Tanya. So I often will review and give a recap and explain what's happening and where we came from and where we're headed and what point the Altareb is making now and what point he's not making now and that kind of stuff. So I do that anyway a lot. I'll try to do that a little bit more, even, because we have new people. Um, so here's a little bit of a review. I'm going to go back to chapter 41. That's as far back as I'm going to go. In chapter 41, the Altarebbe began to focus on two subjects which are interrelated, two concepts which are interrelated. Who can help me out here? Who is with us? What two subjects did we start to learn about in chapter 41? Love and awe. Love and awe. Love and awe. Great. And what do love and awe have in common? Are they both colors? Are they both ice cream flavors? Are they both feelings. models of cars? What? Feelings. They're both feelings. Okay. At, and you, you anticipated my next question, which was... And in this context, what are those feelings directed toward? Now you can say. When you do a mitzvah, right. So, the, the, or what we call kavona. This is the motivation to do a mitzvah. The feeling of love of Hashem and awe of Hashem that goes into doing what Hashem wants you to do. Or not doing what He doesn't want you to do. Okay? That love is to get you to do what Hashem wants you to do. And all is to back off and not to do what he doesn't want you to do. 
Okay? All right. Now, that's what love and all have in common, that they're both emotions or motivations to do mitzvahs. What makes them different? I kind of already said it, but let's just recap. What makes them different? Oh, you're using a fancy term there. You said the ase. Very good. That's very, yeah. Sumer toy. Very good. Okay. You're getting technical. You're correct. Love expresses itself in the ase toy, in doing good. And awe expresses itself in the sumera, go away from what's not good. Very good. Okay. So that's, that's what makes them different. They're sort of different. You know, it's like you have a car and you need to have the accelerator and you need to, you need to have the brakes. So it's like love is the accelerator and awe is the brakes. But it's to drive one car toward one goal. Okay. <coughs> now, <coughs> continuing my review. Starting in chapter 41, since we started chapter 41, we haven't just been talking about love and awe. We've been, Tanya is chiefly a practical book, right? Tanya is a handbook, a guidebook for those who are new. Uh, Tanya is not a book of just all the spiritual ideas in Judaism put in one place. Tanya is a procedural manual in how to achieve your peak function as a servant of Hashem. So, in as much as Tanya is practical and it is guidance, when we're talking about love and awe, we're not just talking about love and awe and describing them. Chiefly, what has been taking up most of the pages since chapter 41 is descriptions of, who wants to tell me? What? How to get the love and awe. Very good. And give me a really short, succinct, to the point answer. How does one get love and awe? Meditation. Meditation. Very good. And what is meditation? You sit on a mat and you hum and you zone out, is that meditation? No. What is meditation? <laughs> thinking about the truth. Thinking, about the truth? Yeah, these are all truth concepts, that's true. You could, by the way, God forbid, but you could meditate on something false and make that very, very potent. <laughs> but we try not to do that. That's called worrying, is meditating on something false. Yeah, thinking about something <laughs> that didn't happen and probably won't happen, that you made up, that's, that's also a meditation. But here we're doing healthy meditations. So basically, since chapter 41, he gives us things to think about that if you'll think about it, it will generate either love or awe. Very good. That's it. That's it. So that may be an oversimplification, but that's definitely, uh, in my estimation, that's, that's accurate as far as a description of what's happening in these chapters. Okay. So now we're on chapter, which chapter are we on? 48. 48, and we haven't had class in over a month. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. And a lot has gone on in the world. You've been listening? Have you been reviewing the old chapters, or are you listening to my new content? Do you guys do Sefer Mitzvahs? Okay, Sefer Mitzvahs is very important. It's not so exciting. It's very technical. It's halacha. It's the Rambam. But I want to encourage everyone to do, I do every single day Sefer Mitzvahs. I want to encourage you to do Sefer Mitzvahs because Sefer Mitzvahs takes you through all 613 commandments. So you get an overview of the entire Torah. And as the Rebbe said, the Rebbe is the one who initiated the idea of daily Rambam study, that when we learn Shlemus HaTorah, 
meaning the complete Torah, meaning all 613 commandments, with Shlemus Ho'am, meaning the entire Jewish people, men, women, and children, because learning Sefer Mitzvah is something that everyone can do. It's not exclusive. It's not elitist. Then we also have Shlemus Ha'aretz. We have security in the entire land of Israel. So it's all interrelated. I want to really encourage you to do Sefer Mitzvahs right now. But thank you. I'm glad that you got my chizuk. By the way, this morning I sent out the best video ever of all time. You got it already? Yeah, yeah, from Tamir's daughter. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. She sent me that video at three in the morning. I was in the middle of Rambam. I was like, last night I finished. Well, everyone who's learning through chapters of Rambam, Hilchas Yem Hakipurim, and then we're Avedus Yem Hakipurim. Then we're starting. what did we do? We finished Yom Kippurim, and what did we start? Oh, it was so late last night, I can't even remember. What, what halachas did we start? And um, anyways, but I got this video from her, because she sent me a message saying that she's listening to uh, Shara Betochen, my old Shara Betochen classes from three years ago. And I was like, that's amazing, you're learning Shara Betochen. I said, everybody is watching the news and making themselves crazy. Can you tell them that you're watching Shara Betochen? So she's like, yeah, as soon as I get off duty, I'll make a video. And she filmed this video, and she actually held up the book, the Felag edition of Gate of Trust, which was amazing. I sent it to uh, Getsy, who's the sponsor, Getsy Felag, who sponsored the, he's the Felag of the Felag edition. I sent it to him right away. I was like, your book is uh, in the right hands right now. So... Uh, I thought about it, I, but I, I did Shadabatachan. But I'll tell you what Wednesday is going to be. We're going to do a, uh, an unveiling of what Wednesday is going to be. What do you, yeah? I'm just wondering, we're almost done with our cycle. Will you What's the plan? Okay, well. Okay, so I don't want to say what we're going to do after because that's a whole other discussion. I want to try to learn actual Tanya today. But I will say like this what I would like to try to do, Bezos Hashem, is to finish the 53 chapters of Tanya. Tanya, volume one at least, is 53 chapters. I would like to finish 53 chapters by Yutas Kislev. Yutas Kislev is Rosh Hashanah Lechsidis. It's the day when the Alter Rebbe, the Tanya's author, was uh, liberated from imprisonment. So I would like, to, it gives, I think it gives us like five, six more classes. I, I don't remember exactly. But uh, I would like to try to finish by Yutas Kislev. And then after Yutas Kislev, we could figure out what we're going to do. But this is the Tanya slot. Mondays 11 is the Tanya slot, and then Wednesdays at 11 is a different slot, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. You just said volume one has 53 chapters. Yes. Is there a volume two? There are, there's a volume two, there's a volume three, there's a volume four, there's a volume five. Oh. Yeah, and that last time I tried learning volume two, I had a big, big class just like this, and then we started learning volume two, and everyone ran away. <laughs> yeah. I, not, not everyone ran away. A lot of people ran away. There were some tr- true, loyal people who stayed. But we had a lot of defectors. Why did they run away? You want, my, you want my theory? I mean, maybe they were just busy. Maybe they had a kugel in the oven. I don't know why they ran away. You want my theory why they ran away? Because chapter one, I'm not chapter one, volume one is about self-perfection. So a lot of it's like introspective, it's spiritual psychology, and people love to hear about themselves. Volume two is cosmology. It's about the nature of the universe and creation and how Hashem creates the world in an ongoing process. And uh, so people didn't want to hear about that. 
They want to hear about themselves. They don't want to hear about God. Can't they be interrelated? I think so. I think they're interrelated, but that's, yeah. But by the way, that brings me, that's a perfect segue. Chapter 48 is really unusual in the first volume of Tanya in that there's not a lot of psychological insight in this chapter. It's interesting. Chapter, let, let, me, let me intro for chapter 48. Chapter 48 and 49 go together. And I'm not even sure really why they're two separate chapters. Like it always, every time I learn Tanya, I'm like, why is 48 and 49 separate chapters? They, they feel like it need, they need each other to complete the thought. 48 is more of the metaphysical stuff. Um, 49 is the psychological application, which is more in line with the, with the flavor of volume one of Tanya, which, you know, psychological ap application, how we actually do it in our own mind and heart. Um, so, but chapter 48 is more of the metaphysical stuff. So this might scare you off, which is fine, actually. It's probably a good thing if it scares you off. Okay. Chapter 48. Vihine, you ready? Vihine kasher yizbein in Oh, we have the word meditation right there. When the intelligent person will be misbeinin, that means when he'll meditate. Vigdullah saints of Baruch on the greatness of Hashem, or the infinite one. By the way, anyone who brings a Tanya, you can follow along. I see some people have Tanyas. I'm just glancing around, see about maybe a quarter of the people have a Tanya text. It's all the same text. There's only one official version of Tanya. So. <coughs> so when you'll think about the greatness of Hashem, that he is, like his name, he's called infinite, and you know what? He is infinite. Ain sof, ve ain kets, ve tachlis klau. No end. He has no end. Lo oyer ve chaisum is pashim imenu yisborech birtsene aposhet. There's no end to the light that spreads forth from his simple will. Miyuchod bimbuhusavatsmus yisborech ve tachlis yichod. And that light that spreads forth from him is totally one with his essence. Meaning it's not something secondary to him, it is one with his, with his very own essence. Now, in theory, alternate universe, if reality would have come into being through a process of cause and effect and not through tzimtzum, all right, you got to define those words. Okay, I will. <laughs> Creation is a process, a multi-phased process. One critical part of that process, maybe even the basis of that process, is something called tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is a concept that the Arizal writes about. It, well, this is a contentious issue because there was a, a very, there was a very serious debate about what this means, but I'm going to define it the way the Alter Rebbe defines it because we're learning the Alter Rebbe's book. Tzimtzum means the divine concealment, how the infinite makes it appear as if there is a place that is devoid of him, where he is hidden, he cannot be seen. And that is the prerequisite for creating a world, because if Hashem's infinity is unbridled, there's no place for finitude, for, for worlds. So he says here, if Hashem had not created a tzimtzum, 
a, a pocket of concealment within which to build finite worlds, we would never have been able to produce a creation. If it would have just been, ilava, he calls it ilava olol, which is cause and effect, like a Rube Goldberg machine where one thing triggers another thing, triggers another thing, but each step is sort of linked to the other um, and there's no radical leap where it becomes categorically different. In other words, I guess without Tzimtzum, even if you'd have various different stages, those stages would just result in different types of infinity. <laughs> but with Tzimtzum, infinity is able to give rise to finitude, or at least the effective experience of finitude. You guys following? No. no. <laughs> You're not following? Yeah. If Hashem hadn't done the Tzimtzum, there would be no such thing as a finite creation, not even a spiritual finite creation. There would just be more and more of Him. <coughs> now, the reality is there is only more and more of Him, but that's not how, that's not how we experience it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is that kind of like the same idea of what Hashem does with us, where we kind of like feel the us that we're in Him, so that we... Well, it's not like it. That is it. It's not like it. That's what it is. What you're describing, the subjective ego, is the psychological experience of this phenomenon called symptom. Right, right. So what you're describing is how the human mind responds to that phenomenon. So it's one and the same concept. Okay. Yeah, I said that There wouldn't be a finite world, like the Talmud says that the distance between the earth and the firmament is a walk of 500 years. Don't, don't worry about what that means. The point is, it's a finite amount. Also, between each firmament is another walk of another 500 years. Again, don't worry what that means. The point is, though, there's a number. There's a number. It's finite. So how does an infinite God produce something that's finite? I just told you, through Tzimtzum. Now, not only would there be no physical world, but even the spiritual world, which we call Gan Eden, which is Mother Neshamas HaTzadikim HaGedelem HaNeshamas Atzman, which is the residence of the great souls, Ve'en Tzorach Leimer HaMalachim, also the angels, Hein Berchines Gvul V'Tachlis, but that, they're also finite. Even these massively spiritual entities, like the souls and the angels, are also finite. They're not physical, but they're finite. Because, after all, there is a limit to their understanding. They don't know everything. They know more than us down here in a body, but they don't know everything. There's a limit. That's why there's also a limit to the pleasure that they receive in basking in the ray of Hashem's presence. Which is good, because if there were no limit to it, then it wouldn't be pleasurable. You know why? Because then they wouldn't have a subjective experience. Because if Hashem's 
presence were unbridled, then there would be no subjective experience of it. The angels and the souls would just be subsumed within it. So in order for it to be pleasurable, there has to be a limit to it. You following this? Yeah? But isn't it going to be pleasurable in Olam Haba and it'll be unbridled? We're talking about Olam Haba. Olam Haba is limited. If it were unlimited, it wouldn't be pleasurable. Pleasure is an experience. To have an experience, you have to be distinct from the experience. If the experience is infinite, then you become subsumed within it. You're no longer having it. You're part of it. So the whole point is, even in the spiritual realms like Gan Eden, the nature of reality is finite. And if it weren't finite, then souls and angels wouldn't have an experience of it. It's very simple. It really is. It, it is simple. It's unfamiliar. It's unusual. It's not the way we normally talk. But it's not an overly complicated concept. It's not an overly complicated concept. I thought that Olam Haba is where the soul became um, No, 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 no. Yeah, we've spoken about that before. Yeah, I don't want to get derailed, but yeah, to become one with God, you do a mitzvah down here and feel nothing. Up there, they feel everything. That's not becoming one with God. That's having an experience of God. Okay. Like before, yeah, before God created. That's right. Yeah, before God created. Right, what does that feel like? What was your subjective experience of reality before God created? There was no such thing as a subjective experience. Or rather, his experience was the only one. Yeah, you got it, you got it. Okay. Ki ein yechin lekabel hanah v'tayin v'bichinus ein tzav mamish shle yisbat lumen b'tziyosan v'yachselem keiren. It's impossible to have pleasure from something that's infinite, truly infinite, and not become canceled out of existence and return to your source. Now, I just want to remind everyone why we're learning this. Ultimately, everything in, chapter, in chapters 41 through 50 is about love and awe. And we're going to use these ideas to generate love of Hashem. But not today. Okay, but, so just, but just remember the point of why we're learning this. Now, the details of Tzimtzum, I'm not going to translate Tzimtzum. The details of Tzimtzum, how and what, this is not the place to get into it. That's what he says right here. Why does he say this is not the place to get into it? My Tanya experts, please give me some nachas. Why is he saying this is not the place to get into it? Say loud, talk loud. Because what's a recipe book? What's a recipe book? You said right, that's what I always call it. What is a recipe book? Volume 1. Volume 1 of Tanya is a recipe book. It's teaching you how to accomplish something practical. Okay? It's not going to get into all the deep metaphysical stuff. It will bring it up in as much as it's helpful to accomplishing something, but that's not the point here. There are other books by the Alter Rebbe himself that will go into detail about Protaya Tzimtzum, about the details of the Tzimtzum, but not here. Ach Derech Klau, However, in a very general way, 
He says, let me, let me define tzimtzum in a very general way. It just means the concealment of the life force. That the life force is not revealed when it enlivens the created beings. Just enough light, just enough light to keep them going in a finite way. The light that the creation is made from is really, really, really dimmed down. It's just enough to keep the creation going and actually has no comparison to the original light. No comparison. What does that mean, no comparison? He's going he's to explain what it means, no comparison. What two things have no comparison? The light down here, the light, the, light, the original light. Okay, no comparison. Even though the light down here comes from the light up there that is symptomized. But there's no comparison. What does that mean, no comparison? He's going to explain what it means, no comparison. What is comparison? Erech, range. It can mean range, it can mean comparison. In math... He calls it bimisparim in 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 numbers. She'echad bimispar yeshlei erech lagabi mispar alaf alafim. One has a comparison; it has a relationship with a million, right? Thousand thousands is a million. Alaf alafim is a million. Thousand times a thousand is a million. So the number one, or one unit, has a comparison to a million units, which is what you chelik echad mini alaf alafim. One is a millionth of a million. But something that it's truly infinite. There is no number to express a fraction of it. That even, I can't do this math, but a thousand thousand thousands. So that's not a million, that's a thousand millions. Is that a billion? And Riba Ravavis uh, is a myriad myriads. A myriad is 10,000. So 10,000, 10,000. I don't know what that is. It's a huge number. It's not infinity. That's the whole point. It's not infinity. It's a huge number, but it's not infinity. So he says that even if you would have a thousand, thousand, thousands, which I think is a billion, or a myriad myriads, ten thousand, ten thousands, huge numbers. The relationship between that massive number and infinity is not, does not come close, does not approach the relationship between one and the most massive finite number. You follow? It's a simple concept. The relationship between even the most massive finite number and infinity does not approach the relationship between even the smallest number, one, and a massive infinite number. So here we're comparing something that comes under infinite to something that is infinite. So how are they So two things that are finite, one is huge and one is tiny, 
there's still a way of expressing the relationship between them. Is it a million times bigger? Is it a trillion times bigger? Is it a quadrillion times bigger? But there's a number to express it. But when you say, well, what's the, the difference between um, infinity and one? How many times one is infinity? There's no times. Even if you say a trillion. Well, is a trillion closer to infinity? A trillion's no, what? We're comparing like fin. Symptom is not just a qualitative diminishment so that it's dimmed down. This is what he's explaining here. This is precisely what he's explaining. The symptom radically changes the nature of the light. It changes it in a way that is actually essentially categorically different from the infinite to the finite, which are incomparable. That's the whole point he's making here. He's, he's not saying the difference between before symptom and after symptom is that it's dimmed down a million times, a trillion times, a gazillion times. That's not the point. That's the opposite of the point. The point is the difference between the light before the symptom and after the symptom has no comparison because it's categorically a completely different thing. It's infinity and the finite. And by the way, within the finite, there's tons of range. You have the amount of godly energy that's enlivening spiritual worlds like Gan Eden, which is obviously a much bigger number, whatever that number would be. And then you have the, the, the energy that's enlivening the physical world, which is a much smaller number. But still, the difference between the highest spiritual world and the lowest physical world has a range. There's a, there's a way of expressing the difference between them. But both of them are incomparable when you compare them, which you can't, to the, to the infinite light that came before the symptom. Now, if you can tell me, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this, how infinite becomes finite. Great. This is not the place to explain it. This is the place to know that that is what happened. And why, I just want to check in with everybody. Why are we learning this? What's the point of learning this? To develop love and all. Okay, fine. When we're talking about light, we're talking about the energy that we relate to as creative energy. Well, everything that exists exists because Hashem is making it exist. So it's His creative energy. Yeah? You just said that there's even a finite way to the energies between the spiritual world. Yeah. What instrument measures that? Like, what, are we, what words do we use for that? So it's interesting. There are tzimtzumim. Tzimtzum can mean different things. There's the tzimtzum arishain, which is a radical tzimtzum, where there's no comparison before and after. Then there are relative tzimtzumim, which are like what we were saying before, a dimmed-down version. So, for instance, between one world and another world, you can maybe like metaphorically say it's like you have a window and you have different translucent uh, curtains and how many layers of those translu translucent curtains do you have when, you know, the first curtain is 25% is opacity and then you do two curtains and now it's 50% opacity and so on and so forth. So it's our ability to see or is there something... Yes, yeah, subjectively, our ability to see, yeah, is being, is being screened or filtered. And that's happening within the different worlds, which, all are, which are all finite. Even the loftiest of the spiritual worlds is a finite world. 
But right now what we're comparing is Hashem himself, his essence before creation, and then everything else within creation, even the loftiest spiritual realms of creation. Okay? All right. And as I, as I said before, the purpose of all this is to bring us to more love of Hashem. And because we learn every single word of the Holy Tanya, we are not going to get to that application today. There's no way. Because it, he doesn't explain it until chapter 49. So you're going to have to hang in there with me. But I'm just reminding you why we're learning this. All right. And those who are new to the class will know, I'm very, I pride myself, I think I'm very good at keeping things on track. So we could definitely have a really cool discussion right now about symptom, but I'm not, I'm not going to allow it to happen because I know it's not the point. The Altadab even told me right now it's not the point. He, to he told me that's not the point right now. Okay? All right. So let's continue. So too, like we're saying, the difference, you know, that mathematical example, the difference between one in a billion is still be'erich. There's a comparison. But the difference between even a billion and infinity, there's no comparison. So he says the same thing basically about Hashem's infinite light. New term. But rather, what happens, this light remains transcendent and surrounds the world and is called Sevev Kol Almin, which literally means it surrounds all worlds. This light of Hashem, which is too vast to be contained in a finite world. So the world is bathed in that light because the world cannot contain it. Now what is this concept of this Sevev Kalalman, this transcendent light or encompassing light? We're going to talk a little bit about that here. Alright, so this is our second Kabbalistic term of the day. The first one was Tzimtzum, now is Sevev Kalalman. And a related term, Makif, which, which we just used, which Makif also means surrounding. Ve'ena pirish sevev ha'makif melamaylu b'chinis ha'makim chas v'shalom. Now I want you to know, he says, that when we say sevev, which means surrounding, or makif, which means tr transcendent, we don't mean it in the spatial sense. I don't mean spatial like the Israeli restaurants where they say, can I get today's spatial? <laughs> I mean spatial like related to space, in the spatial sense. Because there is no physical space, space-time, in the spiritual realms. So then what do we mean when we say there's a light that's so lofty that it cannot enter the finite realms, it surrounds the finite realms. Oh, it surrounds it, it's hovering around it. He says we're using spatial terms but it's metaphorical. It's not surrounding or hovering in the spatial sense. It's a, it's a concept. We use terms that are spatial 
but it's not actually talking about space. It's not like, well, where can I go? What direction do I walk in order to find this hovering light? It's not what it means. He's going to explain. But rather, this is what it means. When we say surrounding, we're talking about in terms of revelation. Revelation. Because the light that's revealed in the worlds, we call that enclosed, invested. Now, also, that's not inside, like, oh, can I cut it open and see it? That's also not spatial. It's invested in the worlds. What it means is that the created beings are able to perceive it. In other words, we're talking about two types of godly light. One that enters inside of creation, the other that surrounds creation. But neither of those descriptions are spatial. They are conceptual. When we say there's a godly light that enters creation, what we mean is the godly light that results in something discernible. So the fact that things are moving around and have life, you see that. You see the effect that the godly light has on them. So that's called invested within it. But then, hold on. Then there is light that we call makif or sevev. That is also very much present. In fact, I would say it's also not only around, it's in everything, but we call it surrounding because the effect that it has on existence as we know it is impossible to discern. We do not see the result of it and cannot see the result of it. So when we describe light that's invested and light that's surrounding, what we mean is, light that results in something discernible from our perspective, and light that's off the charts. We have no instruments. Even the angels have no instruments for identifying it. Okay? Yeah, what were we going to say? So that, yeah, so very good. So the corollary to Saivev is Mamala. He didn't use the term, but that is the term. Halbasha is the same concept. Halbasha is like levush, meaning clothing. Halbasha is the same as mamale, yes. So why is he using that? You know what? There are a lot of different technical terms that, that are synonymous, and each brings out a little bit different nuance, but we don't do that here. We don't do that here. Okay. You could also call it oyer panimi. Inner light. We can discern them. Yes, that's what he said. Well, when you see, when you look at creation, and the creation itself is evidence of a creator, well, evidence of what aspect of the creator? The aspect of the creator that expresses itself within the finite and is therefore discernible. But at the very same time, Every created being also is the result of a divine energy which we do not identify and we do not subjectively have any way of experiencing it. 
And that's the seifid, yes. So we can't even relate to that. We can't relate to it because it's infinite. And that's what infinite means. Infinite means categorically unrelatable. If we can't experience it, why was it created? Well, that's an interesting question. But let me just answer This is not a blow-off answer, and we're not trying to be glib. But is the only purpose for something to exist that you should be able to experience it? If a man says something and his wife's not there to correct him, is he still wrong? <laughs> the philosophical question. Like, just because something can't be experienced subjectively, I mean, that's not a reason that it shouldn't exist. Rabbi, isn't it comforting to know that it does exist? I don't know. I have no idea. I, I'm not... I don't want to tell you how it's supposed to make you feel because at this point, he's going to take the, yeah, okay, you could feel comfort, comforted by it. By the way, you're not wrong or right. If that's, if that's how you feel about it, that's how you feel about it. But is that solely like created or just is? It is a sense. Oh, now, okay. All right, all right. It's a valid question. I didn't want to get into it. <laughs> it's a valid question. It's just annoying because I don't want to get into it. You're 100% correct. Soivev is also... Just like Mamale is a projection of Hashem and not the essence, Seviv is also a projection and not the essence. Hashem's essence is beyond both Seviv and Mamale. But I don't want to get into what? I, that's why I didn't want to get into it. Okay, what do you want to say about that? Everything just is, right, and Hashem okay. exists, yes. Right. Well, yes, that's, that's exactly what we're saying. We're saying that the entire phenomenon of creation as we know it, or created existence, as opposed to what? As opposed to Hashem's absolute e- eternal existence, the entire phenomenon of created existence is the product of symptom. That is correct. That's correct. Okay. Well, you can say it frontward and backwards. They're both true. Yeah. And by the way, the second volume of Tanya goes into detail about all this kinds of stuff, which is why everyone ran away last time we tried to learn it. Okay. Are all the volumes written by... They're all the Altarebbe. Okay. Ki ha-shpash u-bechines gili ba-elamais nikas b'shem hal-bashash u-mislabash u-bechines ki hei mal-bish u-masigim ha-shpash u-mekablim The invested light, basically, like we said, doesn't mean it's in. It means it's expressed in creation in a way that we can discern it. But the light <coughs> that doesn't express itself in any way that we can understand because it's off the charts, we don't call that mislabashus, rather we call it makafis visaivavis. We don't call it invested. We call it hovering, surrounding, encompassing. But again, like you said, we're not using this in the spatial sense. It's not a spatial term. Hilkach. 
Therefore, since the worlds, even the spiritual worlds, are ultimately finite, the only divine light that's expressed through them, to varying degrees depending on the level, but the only divine light expressed through them is extremely diminished. Just enough to keep them enlivened in a limited fashion. See, there's your question, by the way. He says, but the main light that's not tzimtzumized says kolkach so much. Because at the end of the day, Sevev and Male are also... I, I don't want to get into it, but Sevev and Male ultimately are both related to creation even though Mamale is the one that's expressed through creation and Sevev can't be expressed through creation, yet the very fact that we describe Sevev in terms of its ability to be expressed or not expressed within creation implies its relationship with creation or non-relationship with creation, but that itself is a relationship with the creation as opposed to Hashem's essence, which is beyond both of them. Yeah. Is that always called the light of the infinite? No. Oh, oh, that which has, is neither, which is above, or we call it atmos, the essence. Yeah. <coughs> okay. But the fact that we're putting words to it itself is... Yes, correct. Yes. Okay. So this light is not so symptomized, it's called hovering or encompassing. Because it can't be revealed within the finite worlds. And here is a metaphor. You want a metaphor? Here's a metaphor. You like a metaphor? But are we talking We're always talking metaphors. Okay. Here's, a, here's another metaphor. You guys can visualize this. This metaphor is a visual metaphor. So if you're a visual thinker and you want to visualize this and do a little mini, mini meditation right here and now, be my guest. Okay, here's the marshal. Here's the metaphor. I got to wrap up soon. This physical world, we know Hashem fills the whole world. His glory fills the whole world. We know He is everywhere. Hashem is omnipresent. He's everywhere in the world. Like it says, Hashem says, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Hashem is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Nevertheless, we all know that His presence is not revealed everywhere. But rather, it's revealed in a very limited fashion, which results in beings that have very little discernible life force, which he refers to as inanimate and vegetative. Inanimate objects don't exhibit any life force, although certainly they only exist because of life force. Right? There's energy in all matter, or rather, I should say, all matter is energy. Even a stone is, a, is enormous energy. It just doesn't move around. Then you have a plant. Plants don't run around and 
do stuff, but they grow, so they have a little bit more, they express a little bit more energy. But the point is that in this physical world, you have beings that exhibit very little life force. So there's the light that has a relationship with these limited beings in a way where we can only describe it as seviv. We can only describe it as encompassing because it's not the, the, the creative life force is not expressing itself through the stone in a way that's discernible where the stone is doing stuff. He says, basically, you have light that is hidden because the low world can't handle it. So here's the metaphor. A person imagines something, a physical object, that he has seen or is seeing. So a picture... I don't know, a red rubber ball. Now, the entire dimensionality of that object that you're picturing in your brain is contained in your brain because you've seen it or you are seeing it. It's interesting, by the way, he says something that you're seeing because even the thing that you're seeing your brain is imaging it, even though you're physically seeing it right now. We say that your brain, or your mind, is surrounding that thing. Right? Like if I say, think of the red rubber ball. Okay, do you have it in your mind? Yeah, it's in your mind, right? So your mind is encompassing that image that you're picturing. And that thing is encompassed by your mind. Your mind is encompassing it. And the thing is being encompassed by your mind. However, as we all know, the ball that you're picturing is not actually in your brain. It's not actually there. It's there as a concept. But it's not actually physically there. Okay, so this is the metaphor. <coughs> but regarding Hashem, of whom it said, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. When Hashem imagines, so to speak, the creation, has it in his mind, he's actually surrounding it. Like, think about now, not a little red rubber ball, but the planet Earth. Hashem is obviously thinking about the world in order for the world to exist. So he has it in his mind. But it's not just conceptually in his mind. It is, that's where it's located. Not physically but in an actuality that is more actual than physicality. Hashem's knowledge of the world is that which causes the world to exist. So clearly it's in his mind right now. I have like three lines left in this chapter. 
it's uh, really I try to end right at the end of the hour, but if we can push for five more minutes, it really will only be five minutes unless someone asks me an interesting question, in which case I, I'm not going to answer it. But I think we can be finished in four and a half minutes, which is what I'd like to do be finished with chapter 48, because after all, I want you to find out in chapter 49 how all of this that we just learned today will help you to what? Love and all of Hashem. Okay, so let, give me... So that we can do mitzvahs, right. You're going to take your love and awe. I have a question. Six minutes. I can't do it because I'm promising we're going to finish in four minutes. Okay. Okay. All right. Nobody leave afterwards, but let's, let's, well, you, everyone can leave afterwards. Anyone who wants to ask a question, don't leave afterwards. Okay. I'm going to be finished in three minutes. I'm bargaining myself down here. Okay. It'll only take three minutes. Going back to what we said at the beginning of the chapter, if it weren't for the Timtum, this world that Hashem is picturing wouldn't exist in the world as we know it in a finite way. And yet, Hashem's knowledge of creation is totally one with his essence. It's not a separate being from his essence. His knowledge and his essence are not two separate things. So if we say the creation is a product of his knowledge and his knowledge is one with him, we're saying creation is one with him. Like the Rambam says, Hashem is the knowledge and the knower and that which is known. Through knowing himself, he knows all creation. And not through acquisitional knowledge, like when a person learns something new, and that new knowledge becomes part of him, but rather, Hashem knows everything by knowing himself, because nothing exists outside of him. It all results from his true existence. And this matter, like the Rambam says, is impossible for a human mind to fully understand. Like the Rambam says. And by the way, the Kabbalists agree with the Rambam. Like the Ramak, Rav Moshe Kodavero explains, and also according to the Arizal. So the two major schools of Kabbalah, the Ramak and the Ari, both agree with the Rambam. This is a concept that you're going to find in all of Judaism, and that is, what, what concept? Is that he and his knowledge are one. So by knowing something, it's really him knowing himself, and by knowing himself, he knows everything. The say that Simtsum Vislabshus Oidus Bekelum Kamesh Nisboyla El Perek Base. And this really is what Simtsum is. This is the soid or the spiritual concept of Simtsum, like we explained in chapter two. Hare Yedia Zoom, Yachshi Bibhinis Aintov, and Nikras Bashim Slabesh Bekada or Shubal Gvovatakazela Mekavis Vsevavis. This knowledge that Hashem has of the world, even though it's clearly resulting in the world's existence, is not invested in the world. To the contrary, the world is invested in it. And that's what Sevev means. 
Even though the entire existence of the world is a result of Hashem's thinking of it, Hashem's thinking of it, or His knowledge of it, is not invested in it, again, not in a spatial sense, but in a conceptual sense. But, but to the contrary, the opposite, it is existing within His knowledge. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Sevev, or Makif, encompassing, transcendent. Okay, that's the end of chapter 48. What are we going to do with this emotionally? That's going to be chapter 49. Okay, I want to let everyone run away, and I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay. Okay.